Foster Care Nation. Listen up. This is Foster Care and on Paralyzed Terminator. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and no Amanda today again. She has to go do all those wonderful motherly things with doctor's appointments and whatnots. And I am the one who has to twist knobs and know how to uh, save files and, and edit stuff and, and work with EQs. And so I am here today running solo, except that my wife knows I'm not very smart to run solo. So she made sure that I had a guest to talk to you today. But today we've got Shenandoah Sheffalo with us. How are you doing today? I'm excellent, Jason. How are you doing? I am doing wonderful. Running out around like a chicken with my head cut off, and that means I'm still running around, so I haven't died yet. That's it's, that's the most important part, right? If you're getting breath into your lungs, you're doing okay. Amen, because, <laughs> because whenever that stops, I don't know if I'm going to know it because I've been doing it so many years. I might just keep going. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> None of us knows what happens, right? That's, that's- <laughs> that's it. That's it. So, you know, anybody listen to this foster care and unparalleled journey. It sounds to me like your journey is not, has not run parallel with a whole lot of other people in this world. Can you tell us a little bit about how you're involved with the foster care system now and how it started, how, how it all got going for you back in the beginning? Yeah. I mean, I guess, right. With a name like Shenandoah Shuffalo, we were sort of talking about this offline a little bit. Right. So the first question that everyone asked me is like, how, how'd you get that name? And so I, I sort of started joking with people that you're born in the seventies in Southern California. That's how you get a name like Shenandoah Shuffalo. <laughs> and if that's all true, right. So I'm a Southern California girl, but really had a nomadic mother, never knew my father um, until much later in my life, long after my foster care journey. And so uh, had a nomadic mom who suffered from mental illness and drug addiction. And so moved about 50 times, attended 35 schools uh, before the age of 13 when I finally entered foster care. And so, you know, that was a a really uh, interesting and harmful and fun experience in childhood. (laughs) And so I mentioned the fun piece because I think so often our birth stories are neglected that it's all pain and trauma. And while that makes up a significant portion of it, there's also really happy memories tucked into those really painful memories as well. And they, they interloop together, right? They're, they're, they're intertwined. They are not paralleled. They are intertwined. <laughs> and so uh, entered foster care at 13 and then aged out into homelessness halfway through my senior year of high school at 18. And so, you know, spent five really probably painful years and probably painful years for everybody, right? 13 to 18 seems to be a painful time in life naturally even when you live in a loving two-parent home situation where everything is provided and all of your needs are met, 13 to 18 seems like a really hard developmental stage. Amen. Um, And and I did that with some some extra challenges that perhaps others don't face. But I feel really fortunate about the people that I also had in my life 
who did small things. And I think that's a really important story because so often I hear about, oh, I have to become a foster parent or I have to become an adoptive parent to do something. And really the people that I remember most from my childhood are people who did really little things. As an example, I, I had a sixth grade teacher who told me I was amazing, which on the scope of life things is really small, right? Like on what you could do for someone is tell them they're amazing. But it was sort of really the first time anyone had told me I was amazing in my life. It was really the first time I ever felt seen by somebody in my life. And what he didn't know is it would be that phrase that would save my life from a third suicide attempt. Wow. So it, it's those things that I think are really important to drive home to folks is that not everybody needs quote saving, but some people really do need some generosity in different ways. And uh, our words are, can be generous and our words can be profound and our words can be life changing. It's sort of about timing, right? Um, I don't think my teacher ever thought about that probably for the remainder of his life, because I'm sure he probably told a lot of students they were amazing. <laughs> I think that was the kind of guy he was, right? Um, and I know a lot of teachers and I like, I say this all the time, they give compliments, like they give stickers. They're sort of free giving with those kinds of things to kids. But without that, my life would have been completely different. And so when I talk about like, it's the little things people did for me that made life changing differences. You know, some people think it's, oh, somebody like gave you all this money or bought you a car or did these things. It's like, no, it was like this teacher who just told me I was amazing. And then I had this thought on my third suicide attempt. What if he was right? Like, what if I really am amazing? Like, that's the thing that changed my whole course in life on this path that I had been on struggling so much with depression, with anxiety to saying, wait maybe there is something worthy in me. Mm, you know, I have to stop you right there because anybody who listens to this podcast will at some point hear me mention a, a dad's group I'm a part of. And I, I talk with guys, usually the average age in there is, is late twenties to, to mid forties is probably the average middle of the road group. And these men oftentimes talk about not being worthy. I talked with my wife and, and she had a rough childhood and she talks about a lot of the struggles she's gone through in life. It's because she doesn't feel worthy. And now my wife's experience was, was one of those experiences in childhood that should have been in foster care, but she never ended up there. She, she was in a dangerous, difficult, challenging place throughout her childhood. Um, but a lot of these men that I talked to, they, they'll tell you they were raised in average income, middle-class home. Um, they lived a normal life, mom and dad, all the normative things in life that seem that would make them feel wonderful and great. And they still struggle with that worthiness piece. I, I think it's a struggle uh, that I've definitely seen come to light, especially over the last year, right? So as everyone's been dealing with COVID, this, which is what I call the national trauma. So we know almost everyone deals with trauma or adversity in some way, regardless of upbringing, regardless of money, regardless of where you live, regardless of race, everybody deals with trauma or adversity. I've, I've never met an adult anyways, who says I've never had to overcome something, right? Like everyone I meet has had 
some kind of trauma or adversity. But what's interesting about having this sort of national trauma event and this worldwide trauma event is that we all experience something collectively. So no one has to explain their COVID experience, right? It's, yeah. It is the one thing we all collectively share. And this idea of worthiness I have seen in, in groups that I've been doing and trainings that I've been doing is really intriguing because I think that's what it comes down to is this, we're not connected. I think COVID showed us just how disconnected we actually are from each other. How many people have said, you know, before COVID, I didn't even know my neighbor's name. But, but since COVID, I sort of had to learn my neighbor's name because we <laughs> might need each other, right? Like, I just that that disconnect from, from connection, when connection is what heals us. All the trauma science, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough that I get to deal in trauma science on a daily basis. And I get to teach people about what is actually happening neurobiologically when trauma occurs. And how do we fix that? Because there's all this really bad stuff linked to when trauma happens, right? And all these bad outcomes. But we know that there's these interventions called resilience. But when we look at well, what is resilience, how do we break that down? It's all about being connected, being connected to some way. Uh, stable caring adults, to religion and culture, to being really good at something, right? But to be good at something, you have to be coached in it. And so you're connected to the people who are also good at that thing. And so we know that, that it's our connection that harms us and it's our connection that heals us equally. And this idea of being worthy is, have you been seen at that? And what I hear people saying is, I don't think anyone really sees me. On this place, I provide these things, but I haven't actually been seen. And I think there's a lot of trauma in that to really be explored as we move forward. But I think it's, it's why I go back to these small things that changed my life when I really think about it. Because I see how much somebody lights up when I hold the door for them and I'm like, oh, that's a cute top you're wearing. Or, hey, you're looking good today. When I just say that to strangers, I see how how excited, like they stand straighter, they smile, they're brighter, just with that eye contact and that one small thing. And I always say, I do that because I don't know where they are in their journey. And if they're where I was as that 12 year old girl with my teacher, they may not even need that today, but that may need the thing they need three years or five years or 10 years from now. It's like my seed I'm planting. And it costs me absolutely nothing. And I usually don't even remember it 20 seconds later. And you've brought that experience up a couple of times now. I think it's so important to realize the prevalence in our society of, of problems with mental health and suicide. That's something that, I mean, my own kids, uh, my, my two older sons have had their struggles with that because I mean, let's be honest, it's, it's way more prevalent than most of us know about. Uh, we interviewed a while back, Frank King. He's a, um, a comedian of all things, a comedian who talks about suicide, yeah. which is amazing. I don't know if you're familiar with Frank or not, but he was one of the writers on the, um, on the, um, um, the tonight show. Okay. I think he worked I, don't, I think he worked with uh, Jay Leno and he, he spent like 20 years on that program, but he deals with a lot of um, chronic suicidal ideation. And still today, he, he deals with that. But that's kind of a rare one for people to really experience the, the chronic suicidal ideation. 
but man, the number of kids who experience suicidal thoughts, um, suicidal ideation, and that comes from kids who aren't coming from places of trauma. How much more so is it from a kid who's born believing they're not worthy? They're the reason why their parents did something horrible to them. Well, I, I mean, I remember having the thoughts that led to it, right. And thinking if my own mother can't love me, who can? And it wasn't a knock on my biological mother. Like she just wasn't capable of it, It right? For her own mental health reasons. But if your own mother can't love you, then how is anybody else on the planet going to? And, and to say that I still don't grapple with that question would be a flat out lie. Am I better at managing my response to that question? Yes. But to say that it doesn't creep in when, everyone celebrating their mother on Mother's Day, that's untrue, right? To to creep into the thoughts of like, why my father didn't do more? uh, Of course that creeps in, right? Like you can't, you can't help for it not to. Again, I'm just able to, to better manage it. But I run into folks in the system all the time who say, oh, four-year-olds and five-year-olds can't have suicidal ideation. It's completely false. We know. I mean, I just consulted on a case with a five-year-old girl who ended her life. Um, it, it, it's not only possible, but it's happening and we can't deny it. And we have to make it the norm to talk about it because more people are suffering in silence from mental health than from anything else. I had a young family member who probably 20 something years ago um, when they were I believe the first suicide attempt happened at about six or seven years old. Yeah. And it, it's real, you know? So, so what do you do? Because I've had this experience and this, this is a tough one for me because, because of the particular person and all that. And I, I won't dive off into the details or I'll just, I'll ramble on about it for three hours. But when you're sitting out on the front porch and you've got that little girl sitting on your lap, who's just in tears saying, why doesn't my mom love me enough to take care of me? What do you say to that little girl who just just needs to know that she's worth more than what she's been given? Hey there, Foster Care Nation. We'd like to take a quick minute to step out of the podcast here and ask you guys for a little bit of support. If you could share an episode with people, friends, in a group, with family, anywhere where there's somebody who would like to hear this. Also, if you'd like to join us and support our mission, a couple dollars a month would be really helpful. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash foster care nation. Now back to the show. I, I think what I finally wrapped my, my mind around when I say I've learned how to manage that, right, is I think my mom did love me. And and I think her mom probably loves her too. That, I don't think that has ended. Even in, in, when I think of of my most uh, abusive times and and some of the most horrendous things my mother did, I think my mother still loved me. That's the thing, right? It's not an either or. It's not that they either love you in this leave it to beaver way, or they don't love you at all. It's sort of this yes and, that she loves you and in her current place isn't able to provide you for your day-to-day needs, right? It doesn't have to be an either or. 
it can be a yes and she can love you and it's still not safe for you to reside with her. And I say that coming to you in my mid forties now that I still don't have a relationship with my mother because it's still not safe for me. And I still think my mom probably loves me. I know that I still love my mother, but the way in which that is done and shown is very different than to what everyone considers a traditional nuclear family. Absolutely, because we don't all understand how what that, that whole thing about love languages, right? And a lot yeah. of people see that in marital relationships, and it's important there. Trust me, it's it's important. I've been married for twenty years, and it took me a long time to learn that my wife did not necessarily receive love in the way that I was trying to hand it out, and that was a valuable lesson for us. But that works with kids too, and you know, yeah. over the years we've had probably close to twenty kids who've come through our home, and that's. That's been one of the challenges is that I have to figure out how these kids can receive that, especially from their place of brokenness. And that it's usually the small things. This is what I say to foster parents quite frequently is, is even if the kid's not going to remain with you, right? Which we could have a whole Jason separate conversation about length of placement stay, right? We could have a whole separate tirade on that for three hours if you let me, but But even if a person walks into your life for five minutes because you hold the door at a grocery store, can you have an impact? And the answer is yes. So when I first, when when sort of the research came out from Harvard about resilience, they said there's three ways that you build resilience, right? Scientifically, there's three ways. But in typical American fashion, like we heard the first one and we didn't care about the other two, like even though they said they're all equally important, not one, you know, we're just listing them in this order. And so the first one was a positive, stable adult relationship. And so everyone's like, oh yeah, I've heard that, of course, right? Because that was like, we just took that one and ran with it on a bunch of campaigns. But when I asked people, well, what does that mean? What's a positive adult relationship? That means I have to have a positive, stable adult. I don't know about you, Jason, but I don't know too many stable adults myself, right? Like, Reach. <laughs> right? So, like, that, that means we have to be doing a ton of our own personal work to be positive stables. Because most of us have had our own traumatic experiences that we're recreating in other relationships that we have. You've been married 20 plus years. I'm almost 25 in September married. Like, so that's, right? Like, So there's that, but then tell me about relationship. What does that mean? How many years is a relationship? And so it's really funny when I ask this in training, because people are like, well, two years, five years, right? Like you get all these numbers and I'm like, that can be 30 seconds. And then people finally have this aha, like, oh, wait, it's just the way we're moving through the world. You know, we... Right now is like the era of videotaping everyone having a meltdown, right? If anyone is having a meltdown, it's probably going to go viral. I'm so afraid of my next meltdown moment is going to go viral. Lucky my husband isn't a big uh, social media user. So, (laughs) uh, and I hope it doesn't happen in public, but, but we never videotape people doing like really amazing things, right? We only videotape people doing really bad things. And, and there's some positivity that comes out of, of videotaping the really bad behavior. But like, we don't videotape people holding doors for people or giving compliments to people. Why not? Like, I, like, can we make that go viral? 
because I want us to get on that positive, like those interactions, those going through McDonald's and telling the person, the clerk, hey, thanks so much. You're working so hard today matters more than the 20 minutes of the berating of the customer who yelled at them. Right. So how do we as a society get to this like celebrating, holding people up and and providing positive connection? You know, when I tell you I'm 12 and it was the first time someone saw me, how did a child get from zero to 12? Right. Don't worry about my parents, but think about all the people I had interacted with in my life from zero to 12 that didn't take an interest. I mean, that's a lot of people, right? You gotta think of all the stores, doctor's appointments, schools. I mean, I told you I've gone to 35 schools. That's a lot of people. I'm pretty impressed Um, by that number. Right? Like that didn't interact. Well, then I add to that right from high school on, it's another (laughs) places of school, but like, So that's a lot of interaction to feel like you've never been seen until that moment where someone really pays you a true compliment and tells you you're really good at something, that you can do something. There's a lot of missed opportunity there to do a lot of healing. Um, You know, and, and it feels to me sometimes when I look back at my life that from 12 on, like, sort of hard to find those compliments. Now I'll tell you, I've received a lot of compliments as an adult talking about this time, which is really interesting. Um, and I'm working on receiving those compliments because I find that that's really tricky. I'm not, I'm not a really good receiver of compliments or gifts, right? Like it's just not, doesn't feel comfortable. It feels like it's attached to something. Like, what do you want from me if you're saying this? But that's a big piece of this not having attachment and having attachment disorders growing up, not feeling connected that I'm always a little leery about like, what do you want from me for this? You know, I, I, I'm not even going to hazard a guess at your age because I found out I'm really bad at that. So um, I, it sounds like we grew up in the same time frame though. Yeah, and, I'm 45. Uh, pretty. We're, we're right knocking on, on the door. I, I'll be yeah, 45 this year. Maybe I'll be 46 at the end of the year. So we're, we're 70s babies. Yeah. Yes. And, and if I remember right, the culture I grew up in did not really value that idea at all. Right. You know, there was no such thing as compliments to kids. My parents were pretty old school and, and don't get me wrong. I, I'm not here to talk bad about my parents. They did the, the absolute best they could with the world they had to do it in. But, but the truth is, is the kids should be seen and not heard was still believed pretty hard back in that time. Absolutely. And, you know, and I, I grew up, I grew up in a healthy home for the most part, you know, we, we had, I had a decent upbringing, but I grew up in, in a, in a culture that was a religious culture that had all the reasons why you were wrong were, were out there on display and very, very, very few reasons why I was right or doing well. And I can totally relate with what you're saying. That ability to, to receive compliments has been something that's been really difficult for me. And that in turn makes me not even realize that I don't hand out many compliments. Mm. I've been very intentional with my kids with that because as I've learned some of those lessons, you know, my little guys have heard more compliments in their life up to this age, you know, six or seven years old than I think I heard, I've heard in my entire life put together and they get told things like, I love you all the time because that's something that just wasn't part of the language of, of our generation. I don't think. Yeah. And it's probably my biggest regret as a parent is like, I'm really good at telling you what you're doing wrong. 
I'm really great at complaining. Like these are things that come natural and easy to me. I don't have to put much thought into them at all. Um, and it's really hard. And I see those effects of my daughter. Now I, my daughter's 19 now, but probably maybe around 12 or 13, I became real conscious of what I was doing. Like I started to have, you know, I ran from my own story for a long time. So I was running from my own trauma. Like I literally pretended that didn't happen. Um, my family didn't know I had been in foster care. I was really tucking that stuff pretty far deep, right? Like I could be something else, sort of the make it till you fake it to an extreme. <laughs> totally. It's totally me. And like everyone else, you're going to come face to face with that crap sometime or another. <laughs> like, like you're going to deal with it. I don't care if it's in your thirties, your forties, your sixties, if you're 90 with dementia, you're going to deal with that stuff. And so um, when, when I had that, I sort of had that self-awakening of, of getting myself together. And it was then where I realized that the emotional toll of my childhood was taking on the people around me, not even me, but the people around me, right? The hurt that I was causing because of the pain I was in. And, and I think that's what I see when I see people yelling and screaming, I just wonder how much pain they're in. Like how much pain must you be in to yell at a $7 an hour Walmart clerk? That's a lot of pain to be in. And so when that unhealed pain comes, it of course causes pain to others. It causes pain to those who are seeing it, to the person who's on the receiving end of it. And then that builds up and then that person's causing pain, right? And so I had this realization um, that if I wanted people to see me, I had to start seeing others. And that I couldn't be in that old school mentality. Listen, I was, Jason, thrown from a moving vehicle when I was a kid. And I tell this story in my book. And I rolled up to the grass of what would be considered in today's standard, a rich white lady. So I was thrown from this vehicle, rolled into the cement up in her grass, and she happened to be out doing some gardening. This is the late 70s, early 80s. And no one ever called the police. <laughs> Nothing ever happened. My stepfather eventually came back around and literally by my legs pulled me back into the car. And, and nothing never occurred, right? And so that for me is a big traumatic point for lots of reasons, but it was in my deepest, darkest days, it was a moment of saying, see, nobody cares about me, right? Because if, if like that happens, I mean, if you just think about like you went outside to garden today and like some kid rolled into your lawn, I mean, I would hope you would call the police, right? But right. But it was different times, truly, because lots of young kids ask me about this story a lot. They're like, what do you mean the police were called? But it's like, that's just not what we did. It really, truly was a different time in the world. And so you can't apply modern standards to what was happening in 1980s Las Vegas, right? Like, it's just not, it's just not a good idea to do. And so, but... But that was the thing that I was holding on to is that I wasn't seeing. Well, how many people was I in contact with that I really wasn't seeing? And sort of before I left my job to do this advocacy work and write a book and start doing training and consulting, I was working in criminal defense work, right? My husband's a criminal defense attorney. I was running a law office. We were dealing with people in criminal trouble. And what I realized 
in that system was, is we just don't see people. We see criminals, we see victims, but we actually don't see human beings. And when you really started to see them and ask them questions and talk about that, you found some pretty heart-wrenching things. And it was really those clients who made me come face to face with my own trauma and say, if we want to change that system, we have to change the way in which we're dealing with people to start with. Because they were all broken kids. I mean, every, every criminal I dealt with had been a broken kid who now by chance did something after the age of 18 and nobody wanted to talk about that unhealed pain. Well, let me ask you this question. I have a friend of mine who, who, um, talks about the BS of our childhood, you know, and that's, that's, uh, the belief systems that we build in our childhood and they're all mostly all BS. Right. And so as, as you experience this, obviously not normal existence for what most people would consider normal, and you right. built these belief systems about your, your self-worth and your self-value, what was the catalyst for you that made you go, oh, wait, maybe this thing here is not true about me? Hey there, Foster Care Nation. If you'd like to find yourself in a group with like-minded people, head over to Facebook, and you can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. We've got a group over there where we talk about foster care, we talk about adoption, and we talk about all the things related. If your podcast player allows it, you can also reach down and hit that subscribe button so you get notified every week when we put up uploads. Every Tuesday, a new episode comes out. We'd love to see you next week. Now back to the show. Yeah, well, I had that recollection several times. I mean, I had what I called the come to Jesus several times, right? Because... I was lied to about so many things in my childhood. You know, we were running from the police quite frequently. And so uh, it was very, quote, normal that we were trained to lie to police and authorities, even about our names. And so because you grow up that way, you just think that's how everyone grows up. And then there comes this time where you're sitting with friends and they're telling stories and then you say something about your story and they look at you like you have 12 heads, right? And you're like, what? Because you just think everyone's had that experience. And so as a kid in care, you get those, I think, more frequently than other kids get those because, you know, I grew up, I say this all the time about a normal existence that uh, when I came home from school, if there was cocaine on the coffee room table, a handgun nearby, and my mom was in the back bedroom with some weird guy, my night was safe and easy, and I knew I was safe. That was how I grew up. And so when one of those three things were missing, I would become on edge, right? That's when fight, flight, freeze kicked in because something was going to happen. It was going to end with the police. It was going to end badly. It was going to end with weird guys walking around my house. Like, it was going to be bad. And so I would go into my vigilant, hypervigilant mode when one of those things was out of place. But I did that for 13 years. So on my first night in foster care, and I've been to some pretty bad foster homes, Jason, but I've, I've never been to a foster home like where the day you walk in, there's cocaine on the table and a handgun, right? So, but on my first day coming with that mentality, because nothing's changed, right? Just because you enter foster care, you're the same human being. And just because the system thinks that these people are great, that's, I don't have that background on, on who these foster parents are, right? So I walked into that first foster home and those things were out of place. And so, of course, I go to hypervigilance mode, right? 
I'm freaked out already. So I'm trying to be weary about my surroundings. Then my foster mom had the audacity to ask me, can you wash your hands and come to dinner? And that comment sent me over the edge. I went straight Tasmanian devil, throwing things, swearing. And so of course, what did she do? She went into her fight, flight, freeze mode and called the police. And then we train police to respond and fight, flight, freeze, right? So you've got a 13-year-old girl in what I call trauma brain and three adults in trauma brain because two police officers arrived plus my foster mom. And then the kid ends up in handcuffs, right? That makes because, sense, doesn't it? Because through all of that, nobody, no adults in executive functioning. Mm -hmm. No adult says to themselves, hey, why would a kid freak out about being asked to come to dinner? Right? We just see the behavior. We're so focused. We're so closed in on that behavior. We see that nothing else matters. Now, do I think my behavior is appropriate? Of course not. Did something need to happen? Of course. I, yes. I, I admit to all of my bad doings and behavior. I was not an angel. I fully own that. But what happens was, is because everyone else is in trauma brain as well, we don't get to the root cause of what happened. And so it took me 35 years to unpack that what was happening was that that was related to me already being hypervigilant. And then when this woman asked me to do that, I had never, Jason, sat at a dinner table. So now you already have me doing this really uncomfortable thing. And now what seems like a normal thing, right? I'm going to ask you to come to dinner for 99.9% .9 of the population feels like a really easy thing for a kid who at the age of 13 had never sat at a dinner table was the straw that breaks the camel's back, right? But we never unpack all of that. We just see this bad behavior in a kid who's out of control. And so now we're going to modify those behaviors. We're going to punish you to modify these behaviors you've had, but nobody root causes it to why are we having these behaviors in the first place? And now we sometimes say fancy things like, well, we know this kid has trauma and that's why, but we're still not unpacking what's the real reason behind why. So for all the foster parents or potential foster parents out there, what, what's the one piece of advice you could give them around that? Because we've seen reactions in our house that I went, huh, what? This doesn't make a bit of sense. And especially when we first started where it made zero sense at all. And it wasn't until we started to talk about trauma and culture and, and in this space, and we started to understand some of that, that, that I've built some, some skill sets that have become incredibly valuable around that. But what would you say to, to either, yeah, I'll get it out to either current or future foster parents who are looking at it to how do you look at that? How do you handle that? How do you, what's your best next step when the kid loses their minds because you did something so unforgivable as ask them to wash their hands and come to dinner? Yeah. So I was, I don't even think you have to be a foster parent, right? I think you could just be a parent. And at some point in your parenting life, your kid will do something where you think, well, what is going on here? So, so I'll even say that, right? You don't even have to be a foster parent. Um, I, I'm going to say voice and choice. And, and this gets back to our old school way of parenting, Jason, right? Like when I was a kid, it was like, if the parents said it, you just did it. And there was no question. It didn't, it didn't matter how outlandish the request was. Right. And so I'm old school. Like I used to be able to go with a note to the corner store to get my mom's cigarettes. Can you imagine? <laughs> oh yeah. Note, And I could go get <laughs> cigarettes. Right. So like, and you just did it by the way, it didn't matter how far away that convenience store was. You just did it. 
Um, so I, when we talk about voice and choice, it's really like put the person experiencing the pain in the driver's seat instead of victimizing the person. What we're really trying to do is move what, what we typically have, if you think about like the drama triangle, people call it, we sometimes call it the recreation triangle. We have a victim, we have a persecutor, and we have a rescuer. And we usually fit one of those roles. And what we're really trying to do is move victims to drivers, to taking control over their life instead of being victimized. And we're trying to move from persecuting and rescuing to coaching, right? We're trying to coach you to like do better. And so if you really think about old school coaching, it's, I don't do it for you, right? If I'm a football coach, I don't throw the winning touchdown pass. I'm just there to try to give you the tools, <clears throat> excuse me, to do it for yourself. And so when we have people in that situation, I mean, how different would it have been if the first thing wasn't that, but it was like, hey, what can we tell you about our family? What would make you more comfortable? What do you usually do? What do you usually have for dinner? Hey, here's some choices about what's happening tonight. What would you like to choose? Like this becomes very different than like, we're doing this at this time and this is how it goes, right? And I've been in a lot of foster homes and it's still run like that. Cause they're like, oh no, we heard that having routine is good. Well, that's true, but like routine can still involve choice and not dictatorship, right? And I, I see and talk with foster parents all the time, like, this could only eat peanut butter and jelly. You got to eat something else. Why? Why you got to eat something else? Yeah. Right? Like, oh, yeah. Like, is that the biggest fight you want to have right now? Is that the biggest hurdle? If this kid only ate peanut butter and jelly from, from now until eternity, could he still be a well-rounded human being, right? Like, like, is that our biggest obstacle? But I always find it interesting sometimes what foster parents like hone in on. That's the thing driving them crazy with a child when you think about the magnitude of what we're trying to do. And it's usually these little pieces that they can let go of, but they want to control. Well, I think it goes back to a lot of that family of origin issues, even for foster parents, because, you know, for me, it was really easy to come in. And, and when I first had kids, my own kids, it was the iron fist was kind of the way you ruled. My, my dad was military. After that, he was a police officer and he ran, he ran the situation. You did what he said. I mean, I remember as a, Oh, I don't know, probably fourth or fifth grade. We were going to one of my little league baseball games and we pulled up to the parking lot and there's an accident that happened right in the middle of the road, right out in front of the parking lot. And my dad, he's, he's there, he's off duty. He's just in plain clothes, but he goes up and jumps in the middle of the road and starts running the scene and, and directing traffic and doing all that. People just did what he said. He was that kind of guy. So for my personal belief system was that was my job was to run everything, tell people what to do, and they're just going to do it. And I don't know about your experience. But even my own kids who weren't involved in, in terribly traumatic situations, they weren't really good at just doing exactly what I said when I said it. Isn't it amazing, right? Like they were just like, no, thanks. So, something that. must have happened that there was a defect somewhere along. They didn't install that program at the hospital before they sent them home that they're just supposed to listen. Well, I say just, just look at how sitcoms change from the time we were kids to the time your kids were kids. Right. Yeah. The role of the dad changed dramatically on TV in that span of time. So like they're not programmed in the same way. Right. So like I'm a kid who was programmed from TV. I, the first generation of latchkey kids. Right. TV raised me. I always wanted like that's what that's what I was looking for. Right. When I went into foster care, I thought I was going to get Mr. Drummond. I thought like I write the facts of life. 
Punky Brewster, like Webster. All these kids were adopted and not wanted, but like that was what they got. So how come I wasn't getting that? And okay. so when you think about what your kids watched, though, right? The dads were much different. The dads were all dumber. I remember that much. <laughs> so, like, if the dad is dumber, then how is he going to run anything? And so it's an interesting thing to think about. Like, oh, it's not something, like, a defect didn't happen. Like, we started programming kids differently with what they're viewing and seeing is that's what family is. Yeah, and, and I think you're right, you know, that being that first generation of latchkey kids. I mean, I, my mom was always a stay at home mom until I got up to close to middle school age. So, so I had, I had that, that stable family thing going on, but I mean, my gosh, how many kids today have a mom who stays home and a dad who works and how many kids are raised by not just, not just sitcoms and TV, right. now, but, but other kids through the video game platforms and all the social platforms. And I mean, it's almost like we, we've taken Lord of the Flies and digitized it. Well, and that's why, like, when I hear parents saying, right, just any parent saying that they're struggling or they're having this or that, but, like, what's the media your kids consuming? Like, you know, we were consuming three stations, right? I mean, when MTV came out, it was a ginormous deal when I was sort of at middle school age, right? That was a huge, like, getting cable was a huge thing. Our kids now can consume media from around the globe in one second right like one google search brings them anywhere they want to be and a lot of the places that they may not really want to be but you know our world has gotten really scary because we went from the ability to to watch leave it to beaver in the afternoons to um the ability to pick up a, a digital device and on the school bus ride home watch violent pornography right right like i remember boys finding their dad's Playboy magazine, right? Like it being a big girl, like to see a girl's breast in a Playboy magazine that they got from their dad, right? In, in contrast that to what kids have access to today. So it's not, you know, there, there isn't a defect. It's what we're able to consume and, and how that's bridging it. So when I talk to kids now and I say, gosh, you know, I had... Um, Annie, right, was the first orphan that I knew of. I thought when I went to foster care, I was getting daddy warbucks. You can see what kind of, uh, that didn't happen. <laughs> like I'm, I, I joke to audiences all the time, like I'm still waiting for daddy warbucks to adopt me if anyone's willing and able. I'm, adult adoptions are still acceptable, <laughs> like at 46, like no one's leaving me anything. Um, right, like I, that's what I had. I had Punky Brewster, I had Webster. I had, um, you know, here's a twist on the world, right? I had Bill Cosby in the Cosby show. I grew up with picture pages when Bill Cosby was on Captain Kangaroo with picture pages. Like, I thought that's what we were striving for. And I, the reason I felt unseen was none of those were representing the experience I was having. So if we can't change, like, the media that's available for them to consume, you know, we're not going to put that, that genie back in the bottle, I don't think. So what can we do as far as allowing kids to, to have some realistic sense of normalcy and hand that to kids? So if we're going to say we can't put that genie back in the bottle, then we also can't parent the same way our parents parented. Even if we think our parents did a really good job, that's not going to work now. And so are we willing to let go of that? And are we willing to do the things that we know works? 
are we willing to put devices away for some period of time to be outside in nature, which we know is super healing? Uh, are we willing to physically activate our bodies? You know, when, when I deal with people, foster parents primarily working with kids with big trauma histories, it's how much are we, how much physical activity is the kid getting? It's the first question I ask because listen, you said you've had boys, right? I say, I say young boys from happy homes are like puppy dogs. If you make them tired, they're good dogs. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you coop up your your puppy in a crate all day and then think you're going to come home and he's going to want to take a nap on your lap. Not so, right? Like that is not gonna work. And so I think like young kids are that way too. So so physical activity and do you see your kid or do you only see what your kid does wrong? And I think this is especially sensitive for foster parents who themselves are sometimes hypervigilant about bad behavior because they wanna nip it in the bud quickly. They wanna correct it quickly, right? They don't want, but do you ever celebrate the good stuff the kid's doing? Or is it only correcting the bad behaviors? And I know that there's plenty of bad behaviors, but if we're only ever focused on correcting bad behavior, do we ever celebrate the good? And I say this moving, I call it shifting the paradigm from what's wrong with you, right? So you heard Oprah talk about this for a long time. It's not what's wrong with you. It's what's happened to you. And I actually say, we actually have to go further than that. It's also what's happening in present tense, not just what happened in my past, but what's happening right in these moments and what's strong in me. Because sometimes those really bad things have led to behaviors that could be strength-based if someone would look at it from a different lens, oh, right? Yeah, you know, that, that reminds me of one particular teenager that, that, um, that I had that conversation with a lot because he has that, that natural inborn ability to be a leader. People will follow him. And unfortunately, because, well, maybe the trauma experience, maybe the fact that he is just a dumb teenage boy as I mean, I'm going to raise my hand here and say, I, Jason was a young teenage dumb boy. As long as every other man out in the audience and every woman in the audience, your husband was also a young, stupid teenage boy at some point. And so some of those choices were dragging some friends, you know, they would follow him. When they do that in the classroom, that causes problems for him in school, not just for himself, but because he's leading other friends down that path, it it created a lot of struggles there. And that was a tough one for me to get a hold of. It took me a while to realize that, hey, there's two sides to this. And and what you're saying is is 100%. There's an ability here. There's some amazing stuff. You have an opportunity to just let shine. We just have to tweak it a little bit. We have to to aim it in a direction that's going to be most helpful for you. And without the label of good behavior and bad behavior, because that creates that whole identity that I'm a bad kid. And once a kid really believes that, I don't know if there's any, any saving that once they believe that they're the bad kid. It's really hard to undo. Let me say that. I mean, I think everyone's worth saving regardless of their age, but it's really hard to undo. And I can point you in the direction of lots of prisoners who are now trying to undo that right who are working really hard to undo that um but it's hard and i think they'll all tell you it's hard um and it's hard to have other people give you a second chance usually that's that's the hardest piece of it 
And so we have to really see this, right? So if you can begin seeing, quote, bad behavior from a different lens, if you can start saying, what's the strength in this behavior? Uh, what's this about? So like, I have a daughter who, you know, I think grew up in a pretty functional home, like had all of her needs met. I've already said, listen, I dropped the ball. I, I probably, if I could go back, would do some things slightly differently. I think every parent would. I hope every parent would. Um, but like, I used to see, like, she seemed really sensitive as a kid, like things really hurt her deeply that to me seemed like, what's the big deal, right? <laughs> like, but this has a lot to do with the differences in the way we grew up, right? Like I couldn't cry at the drop of the hat of everything that happened. And for a long time from a parent, that took me a long time to understand. And then I began seeing it as this was a kid who was really looking for justice in the world. Like even in a classroom when like a friend would get in trouble, if she deemed that unfair, if she felt like the rules had been applied unfairly, she took it very personally. And I could never like mind your own business. That's got nothing to do with you because that's how I grew up. Right. Like we don't worry about others. We just focus on ourselves. Um, but when I began seeing that as a kid who was really seeking justice in the world, then I could empathize and support the feelings rather than what I found myself doing, which was trying to invalidate the feeling that she was having. So she would be sensitive about something. And I would say, that's really not a big deal. You need to stop being sensitive instead of admitting that, like, that's not changing how she feels about it. Right. So saying, oh yeah, that feels like an injustice is happening. What can you do about it? And so when I shifted my parenting more into dictatorship and into coach, it was helpful for me, but it was also helpful in our relationship because then I found myself asking questions. Why does it make you so upset? And then she got to explore that. And that's when I saw her blossom instead of constantly cutting her off that those couldn't be the real feelings because they didn't make sense. You know what you said right there is so one of the lessons that I've learned that has made the biggest difference in my parenting. And because our kids come, we have the olders, we have the middles, and we have the littles. So I've had the 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 joy of being able to see the mistakes I've made here, learn with this next group, learn some more. And with the youngest kids, I, I joke and say they're going to have like professional parents because we've messed up so much already. But one of the lessons I learned was was to to shut the hell up unless you have a good question. And what I mean by good question is I can ask you, why did you do that? And I put all kinds of nasty spin on that ball. You know, they heard right. you're dumb, you're, you're stupid. You shouldn't have done they, all those different, but if instead I, I, I have to personally, I have to take the word why almost completely out of anything I'm willing to ask and say, Hmm, well, how did you think that was going to help this situation? Do you think that the teacher would actually listen to you or why not? And be genuinely curious. And that was the hardest thing to put aside my own judgments, my own thought process enough to just genuinely be curious about what they believed. And so Jason, that is the crux of coaching. This is the crux of what I'm trying to teach parents all the time is like, don't make a statement, bite your tongue and don't ask a closed ended question, ask an open-ended question be genuinely curious. And any statement can be turned into an open-ended question. If you bite your tongue long enough and think hard enough, <laughs> <laughs> the instinct will be a statement or a yes, no question or a rhetorical question of some sort, but ask that open-ended question. 
yeah, what did you think would happen when you did this? What, what was going on? And what usually comes to light is those root cause issues that I was talking about earlier, right? Like, no, that foster parent doesn't know that first day when I'm there that, that my normal looks vastly different from everyone else's normal and I'm already in hypervigilant mode, right? And then asking to come to dinner. But just instead of saying, can you wash your hands and come to dinner? Statement question-ish. It's not really a question, right? But if you say, hey, what's going on for you? What do you think's happening? What's what, what sort of your typical schedule? When you become curious about the other person, when you move from that, this is just what we're going to do, right? Into being curious about that person, you immediately move them into voice and choice, that empowerment piece we were talking about before. So when your son does something in class and you ask him, he has to process through that, right? He can't be in trauma brain to do that. He has to be an executive functioning. And that's the rewiring of the brain we're looking for. Absolutely. You know, uh, one particular kid who taught me way more than, than I, I, I've even figured out at this point. Um, uh, we just, I call him a, um, but that, that was his, what we called him when he was here. Plus we want to respect privacy, but a taught me so many things. He was a little guy, right? He was three, I think years old when he came to our house. And when he first came over, he was terrified of me. My wife was gone. And for those of you who can't see me, I am not the picture of what every little kid goes. He looks like the most kind loving individual ever, right? I'm big. I'm brown. I have a big black beard. And when I, even when I'm thinking, when I'm in a happy place, a lot of times my face does not, I, I forget to turn my face on. And so oftentimes I just have kind of that, that face that looks like I'm really might be thinking about killing somebody soon. Um, and so, so that's his first impression of me. And he was terrified. And I realized that for him, the very first thing I ever said to him was, Hey, buddy, you, you looking for a cup of water or something? Are you thirsty? And oh my gosh, like something turned on in his face. And he just went like, Oh, yeah, like he was excited about a cup of water. And I was like, What the heck? You know, this is weird. But all right. So I made him a cup of water, handed him a sippy cup, and we were best friends in the world. What I didn't know, was that trauma piece behind all that his yeah. mom would give him one cup of water a day his biological mother give him one cup of water all day if he behaved he rarely actually behaved well enough to earn that cup of water and most of the time he was he, he didn't have food um he, he was starved he was kept without water and, and anytime there was any sort of a of a, a dirty diaper that she had to handle that was when the abuse the physical abuse would really come out and he was terrified of these things and all it took was asking, you know, trying to, I could tell you, he was, he was looking around, he was scared. He wanted something, but he wasn't brave enough to ask for it for good reason. And all it took was one question. And for me to sit and talk with him and learn to ask questions in a kind voice and actually listen to what he had to say, it built this relationship there. And I think what, what you're talking about is, is where we start to build connection with other humans. If you go to work and talk to your boss, the way you talk to your kids, are you going to be employed tomorrow? <laughs> Because valid question, and I say you sort of tapped on it here, but I call it the look of love too, right? Because there is something in our polyvagal nervous system about before you even say something, a feeling you get from somebody by just seeing them and the facial expression on their face, right? So if you walk into a room and everyone's in an upbeat mood and smiling, regardless of what happened to you, you instantly feel more up and bubbly. If you walk into a room and everyone's pissed off and yelling and complaining about stuff, you're instantly like, okay, here we go, right? Like it's that look of love because it 
scientifically, we will mimic what we see on other people. Oh yeah. Mirror neurons are powerful. They're super yeah. powerful. And I've, I've often said this because I've, I've dabbled in a number of languages in my life and, and we all know at least two. Yeah. You've got the language that you learned your very first language and then the language they taught you that uses your mouth. But that first language is body language. Right. You watch a little kid. We our our godson comes over. And actually, he'll be over here in a couple hours. He'll come over and hang out with us this evening while his parents are at work. And and when he wants a bottle, he looks at me and he raises his hands. If I've got a bottle, if he wants to be picked up, he'll stand up and kind of wiggle around to get my attention and stick his hands up and like open and close his hands. He's telling me what he wants. This right. is body language. That facial part is part of it. All of our body language is the things that we learn as little kids to relate to other humans. We understand who they are and whether or not they're safe. And how often do we think about what our body language is saying right now? Yeah, there, I'll challenge some of your listeners. There's, you might even do it with your dad group. Um, but if you just look up the still face experiment, there's quite a few videos where they do it with moms, right? The still face experiment. But there's one in particular that they do with dads that I think is extremely powerful because I think we always put this pressure on moms to be a certain way and we sort of forget that there's a second parent involved oftentimes, right? Even, e even if you have two dads or two moms, like it's all the pressure always seems to be on one parent. Um, I'm not sure why, but that's, we love to do that. But the still faces where like they come in and like the dad's playing with the kid and the kid's reacting to them. And then the dad just very quickly looks off and the kid's trying to get their attention, right? It's part of the experiment. And the dad's looking off and it takes about four seconds for that baby to go from completely happy to fussy to so sometimes even a complete meltdown, right? We're trying, that's, that's what all this about is that connection and that attachment that most kids didn't get. If you're in foster care, your attachment is disrupted, point blank. And that's what we're, we're trying to fix the damage of that disruption. You know, and that's part of the reason I think A was such a pivotal place for us to, when he was with us, because he, he was, he was um, diagnosed reactive attachment at a very young age, at three years old, which is the youngest they would diagnose that at. And, um, the fact that his mother was his primary abuser and it was his primary residence. Dad was around some when he could be, but there was a lot of other struggles between the parents on that one as well. And because his mom was so uh, just, I, I, she struggled with some mental health issues. If, if you ask me and to be fair, my psychology and psychiatric degree are both um, written in crayon on a, on a piece of computer paper. I, I wrote it myself, so I can't diagnose somebody, but I can tell you like, there was some real issues there that probably came out of her childhood, but because he experienced so much trauma and abuse and rejection from her, when he came to our house, one of the things that I noticed was this little boy, as soon as my wife was kind to him once, he was stuck to her like glue. He, he just soaked up that attention from a female caregiver in a way that was just phenomenal to watch. And him and his sister with, were with us for about a year and a half. And to see the turnaround, I still remember the day I saw the turnaround happen where he went from a terrified little boy to somebody who thought that the world was a somewhat, it was a safe enough place that he could finally climb down off of my shoulders and play in the floor in the middle of this little business where I was buying something. And, and it would it about knock me over. And even the cashier, she looks at me, she's like, oh, he's okay. He's just buying. I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. He doesn't do this. 
he's terrified of the world. It was a cute little boy. And this gal steps out from behind the counter and kneels down and she looks at him and she smiles and says, Hey buddy, how you doing? And, and I saw like, like he froze. You could see the amygdala hit the fight flight or freezes on the doorstep. And that's the point where he smiled back at her. And it sounds like such an insignificant thing until you know what this kid's been through. And I'm like, Holy cow. He's not terrified of you. And again, it's the little thing that turns his life around, right? It's not the big, it's not the big cognitive therapy. It's not at EMDR. These things are helpful, but it's this woman who's just like, Hey man, treating him like every other kid she sees in her store. Right. Yeah. Like, no different for her. She's having the same reaction and he gets to, for the first time, experience what a general, a genuine interaction with someone can be. And I think it, the, the thing for him was timing was perfect because where he was diagnosed as reactive attachment disorder, I do think that he found that place at the last available moment in typical childhood development to be able to start to create healthy attachments in the world and not believe that all women were out there to hurt him. Yeah. And he, he I, we don't have any connection with him any longer, but I do stalk a Facebook page once in a while just to see because to see the smiles to see him living a life in a world where he is happy and appears to be healthy is so very very I mean it, it genuinely heals a large part of my wife and I's struggles because there are so many things that are hard in this but to be able to see a life change that drastically in a moment from a person who just knelt down and said hi to a cute kid that was yeah. what made all the difference in their life and that's what I try to tell foster parents is like, we have to stop being an instant culture of gratification. So it's like, we take a kid in and we sort of want to see that transformation each and every time, right? Like we want to have that moment you had with A, with every kid that, that we do. And we don't always, as you know. And what I try to say is, but what you are given is a chance to plant a seed. And so can you in that seed plant that seed with him about connection, plant that seed with them about worth, plant that seed about what their strengths really are, how this quote negative behavior is really a strength that they can use going forward because those seeds come back. You know, that's what I had. It was seed planting. It wasn't people who I was in long-term year and a half relationships with. It was intervals of 30 seconds, three days. You know, I was in classrooms sometimes for less than a day. Uh, that particular teacher I spent less than six months with, right? Like it doesn't always have to be these long lasting relationships, but it can be the moments that can give you, oh, I can do that. That person saw something. And if they saw something, maybe it existed me. Could they be that wrong? Well, let's see, right? A bit of my healing was trying to prove that the teacher was wrong. My, my healing came, right? Because I'm a little stubborn. I, I think that's a quality in a lot of foster kids is that you learn to survive, right? So, so you're just like, let me prove you wrong. And so when he said I was awesome, it was like, mm, I bet you're wrong about this. And in my process of doing that, I sort of discovered who I was, right? I'm <laughs> trying to prove that he got it wrong. That's, that's amazing. I, I know that that your experience is going to reach out and help a lot of people out here today. But I also know that, that all this knowledge and wisdom that you've built is something that you have put into a book. And I don't want to get out of here without at least talking about it so that people can go find your stuff and learn more from you. You have garbage bag suitcase is the name of the book, right? Correct. It was sort of my, 
I call it my coming out party because I had been keeping my time and care such a secret. And so I thought if I could get people intrigued enough into the memoir, maybe they'd stick around for the last couple of chapters and we talk about what do we do about it. Mm, yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, you and I know what garbage bag suitcases are, but yeah. for the people who, who don't understand what that, what that phrase means, can you at least uh, give a little bit of insight into that so people know what it means? Yeah, well, maybe even if you were in your 20s in college, you used the garbage bag as your suitcase once or twice, right? But for kids in care, it really is. Um, usually the social worker shows up on, on your biological parent's doorstep throws as much as they can grab into a garbage bag, which is usually what's handy. And you and the garbage bag get dropped off on the stoop of whoever has said yes and some emergency phone call. Uh, and then when you're removed from there, more times than not, although there's been a big movement since I wrote the book to, to change this for kids, to give them a proper suitcase to do a proper move. But it used to be that your foster parents would then pack up all your stuff in a new garbage bag and you'd be moved to your next uh your next home that way so oftentimes in, in my case that garbage bag's packed and you're not even there so uh, and it's my guess that 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 brand new suitcase does not um does not necessarily make you feel like you're worth a whole lot when everything you own is thrown in a trash bag yeah right so um your stuff is usually broken most of your stuff is left behind because someone else deems that's theirs and not yours. <laughs> There's all kinds of things or some social worker decides that's not something you really need uh, as a priority. You need something else as a priority. So you really have little say. And, and for most kids in foster care, we have little say. Lots of people are making decisions about our life and very few of those have anything to do with us. <laughs> a lot to do with the convenience of other people and, and very little with what we think would be best for us. Yeah. Because I can tell you that when I was about four or five years old, I, I was climbing in the window of a car because I saw it on Dukes of Hazard, so I could do it. Or I saw my sister do it before me, but she says, I'm just blaming her at that point. And I did not get all the way into the door of the car and fell out. And of course we were like a church potluck where they had a gravel parking lot. And that one sharp piece of gravel created that little bitty scar on the corner of my eye there. And I had to go get stitches. And one of the gals in the, in the church where we were going had a, a floral shop there and they had some stuffed animals there. And so they had, uh, they had gone to the hospital with us and she ran over and I have this, she gave me this little stuffed bunny, right? Which is a terribly unimportant thing. My, the five-year-old stuffed bunny. But at the 45 year, almost 45 year old me, if you look in, in my room in there and, and dig through the stuff, because every one of my kids have, have had it as theirs, that little buster still exists, right? A terribly unimportant yeah, right part. <laughs> also the cover of my book, same bunny. <laughs> exactly. So all that stuff that seems so unimportant to a social worker, this 45 year old man can tell you about the one I got when I was five and that I still have it. And we are so busy in, in our world trying to shuffle kids from place to place to place that we've, we have forgotten to look at the things that are truly important from the kid's perspective. And I think that's kind of a microchasm of what foster care has been for the last several decades. Yeah. I, I went to a terrible training once. I mean, it was perhaps the worst training I've ever experienced. <laughs> 
We all have those stories, right? This is foster care training. We were actually reimagining what the foster care system could be. What if we just recreated it from scratch? Didn't tweak it, just start it all over if we could do it anyway. And the, ex, the icebreaker exercise they had us do, and it was people from all walks of life, not just from foster care, is they had a garbage bag with someone's contents. And they said, go through and tell us what you can about this child. And I just walked away from the table and said, I'm not doing this exercise. <laughs> and nobody could understand why I said that. It's like, because I don't care what you have in that bag. It does not tell you who a person is. And so if you think we're going to recreate foster care by looking through a bag of contents to tell you what a child needs, this group is not ready to do this work because, but that's where we get to, right? Like, okay, you need some clothes, you need your homework or something. It's like homework isn't a priority. If you ask me when you're dealing with a kid in trauma. I'm going to tell you as a kid who wasn't necessarily deep in drama, homework was never a priority for some of us. Right. But but it's not the, a priority with someone who needs to heal and who's having attachment issues either. Like, exactly. I'll be honest, we can learn to read, write, and do arithmetic at any time in our life. It, can, it gets harder and harder to learn how to attach the older you get. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So. Well, I'll make sure that we have some links to your social media handles and, um, you know, because I, what, f- Facebook, all the other, Social media, yeah, I mean, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Listen, I, I draw the line there because I'm still a Gen Xer, I'm not getting on all the new stuff. I draw, I have a line I'm drawing in the sand. I'm with you, I'm with you. I drew my digital line a long time ago, and that's when people started texting, and I had to breach all the line. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they can find you on all those at Shenandoah Sheffalo, and you heard your name will be on the on the cover art of the podcast. So you, you can spell it out correctly. And Instagram, it's at garbage bag suitcase, right? You got it. That's me. Good deal. We will put all that in there and make sure anybody can get a hold of you that is interested. And um, so I just want to thank you for for telling taking your time to tell your story because I know it's not always easy. It sounds like you've shared your story a number of times, but it's never easy to revisit, revisit certain parts of our trauma. And so I appreciate you being willing to do that in a goal to help out kids today who are going through what you went through many years ago. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for running the podcast. I think it's so needed. And for me, it's if, if that story even tweaks it for one foster parent or one kid, it's worth it. Amen. Amen. Okay, Foster Care Nation, thank you for listening to Shenandoah's story. Now take her knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and your community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you would like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at fostercareuj at gmail.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. And don't forget, we have a Patreon so you can support our mission for as little as $5 a month. It's at patreon.com slash foster care nation. The links to everything are in the show notes on your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys. So cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. Thanks, thanks, thanks.